Hello everyone and welcome to the latest episode of the Loosehead Podcast with me, Jeff Nettle. Today I have Sammy Arnold on the line. Sammy, how are you getting on? I'm good, Jeff. Cheers for having me on today. How are you getting on with the whole epidemic? I'm getting on pretty good, to be honest. Um, getting lots done in the garden and stuff like that. I'm doing all my training from home. So, uh, yeah, in terms of that, I'm, I'm all good and uh, everything's good. In terms of uh, training at home, is it difficult to train at home on your own in comparison to kind of the environment you were in? Yeah, it is definitely. In terms of um, equipment, at the minute, all I have is kind of a 20kg plate, a 30kg dumbbell, a few bands and a few skipping ropes. So it's a lot of kind of high rep, I suppose, conditioning, training opposed to heavy bench press or heavy squat because we just don't quite. We obviously don't have the equipment, so it's just kind of making do with what we have. But it's interesting. It makes for kind of fun fun training sessions. And uh, I'd say there's going to be a few boys that actually turn up in uh, pretty good shape when we get going again anyway. Were you given any sort of program to follow? Yeah, yeah. We've been given kind of gym programs and running programs when we can. And then we've had check-ins. So we had a body weight check-in. Um, I had to send a picture or a video of myself standing on the scales and then we had a, a fitness test as well. A few of the boys did a one kilometre test or a, lads carrying injuries did a max kind of burpees test or a black holes test. So that's kind of kind of been what's going on. So everybody is still training away pretty hard and, and, and stuff and it is still tough. They're just doing it uh, on their own. In terms of nutrition, that obviously had to change as well. Like. That's that's probably the toughest thing for me actually, is because in training we we'd come in and we'd have uh, breakfast most days, and then we'd have our lunches as well. So, kind of the, when you're floating around the house all day, that's actually one thing that I have to kind of keep at the top of my mind is actually to continue eating eating as much as I can and eating at the right times and and stuff like that because that's something where I personally would struggle uh, with food. Do you think the props are struggling? Uh, <laughs> I'm not sure about them. I'd say there's a few uh, Lindor and Mars bar snacks under a few sofas and stuff. Maybe John Ryan has a few under his couch, I'm not sure. I just wanted to talk to you about your career so far and kind of how you got to where you are right now, I suppose. Um, you started off over in England where you were born and you were on the Harlequins radar, but they wanted you to play nine. So you actually kind of went a different route and you decided to head to Ulster. Yeah, yeah. So growing up, my my mum's family would have been a very Irish kind of family. She'd have grown up in like a traditional Irish family. And then on my dad's side, it would have been the complete opposite. My dad's dad was a soldier and he would have come from a kind of a very traditional English family. So I was very split down the middle a lot growing up. And um, the reason I chose Ireland was I got to an age in my rugby and um, it was my mum that was doing all the kind of driving and taking me to training and the kind of investment in me. I came from a uh, a split family growing up, so I lived with my mum. So I think the decision play to try and play for Ireland to go down the Irish uh, route was because it was her putting all the effort in and uh, doing all the training with me and all the driving and stuff like that. So I think it was kind of a bit of kind of wanting to repay her for everything she's done over the years and it and it's probably turned into a bit of purpose now for me i guess did the fact that harlequins wanted you to play nine did that influence you at all so i tried nine for a year uh my first year at school and i just i wasn't enjoying it i wasn't enjoying my rugby um and then at the time also said to me what what are you doing we 
we see you as a centre, you you can definitely get make it in the professional game as a centre. So that would have been Alan Clark and Kieran Campbell at the time when I sort of trusted their intuition and trusted my gut and backed myself and said, you know, look, uh, thanks for the contract offer, but I'm going to go, I'm going to go over to Ulster and I'm going to back myself and I'm going to play in the midfield. That 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 was basically how it worked out. So you headed over at eighteen. You won the Academy Player of the Year award. You. You had two good seasons in Ulster. What were your highlights of your time at Ulster? My highlights of my time at Ulster would have been my day de- my debut. I remember I I made my debut away to the Dragons at Rodney Parade. I was eighteen at the time, and I remember just being kind of in awe. I remember we were losing the game, and uh, Rua Van uh, actually ended up going to ten, and I came on at twelve. So I played my first game of professional rugby with Rua Pinar inside me, and I think I had Darren Cave outside me on the pitch as well so that was kind of pretty surreal that would be kind of my key standout moment and then also playing in the European Cup for Ulster the first time which was a way to Oyonnax just kind of them I suppose landmarks that you you work so hard towards and then you just try to enjoy and appreciate that would be the two the two biggest moments I enjoyed you said there that you played outside Pienaar on your first game for Ulster did you learn a lot from him when he was there I would have learned a lot in terms of how he approaches his day-to-day kind of environment as a person. He'd actually be a very, very quiet person. Um, and he's very quiet, he's very humble. He, he, he works so hard and he keeps himself to himself. In terms of kind of learning the game, I would have uh, spent a lot of time with Jared Payne. And uh, Jared would have kind of invested in me heavily and kind of took me under his wing and... Um, I'd always ask him things and, and bounce stuff off him and, he, and he'd always just be willing to try and help and um, he's a fellow that I'd still have a very good relationship now and um, despite him being a good a good bit older older than me, we, we actually clicked and we got on really well. Your first Champions Cup game against Iono, you had to come off early. How did you deal with it and move on at such kind of a young age? Uh, I, think, I think because I was only 19 at the time that I was obviously delighted to be making my European debut, but I also felt kind of very grateful and very blessed and lucky to actually be doing it at such a young age. So at that point in time, you know, getting a, a hamstring tear, it wasn't the end of the world for me because I had I had friends that were still in the academy, you know, playing kind of club rugby. So I knew how lucky I was at the time. But yeah, it's, it, 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 was, it was tough, you know, it's your first European game, your first taste of European Cup rugby and to go off after 20 minutes is, is disappointing, definitely. So how did the move to Munster come about after your two seasons in Ulster? Uh, the move to Munster came about because I had been in touch with my agent and, and, and we basically we sat down and, uh, and we had a chat and we kind of laid the law of the land in terms of players... Uh, in my position uh, at Ulster and we had a look and at the time it was uh, myself, it was Stu McCluskey, it was Stu Olden, uh, Darren Cave, Jared Payne and Luke Marshall. So at the time my it was myself and five international midfielders and I was turning 20 that April and all these guys were relatively young in age and stuff like that and, uh, and my agent kind of we chatted. I chatted to my dad. I chatted to my mum, and um, that monster pathway sort of opened up. I think at the time Andrew Smith was was leaving, and um, I think Dennis Hurley actually retired the season I came. So I, I, I saw I felt a bit of opportunity um, down here, and my granddad is actually from Munster. 
So my, my Irish connection is Munster, it's Bear Island in Cork. So it was something that I really wanted to taste of. And um, when I spoke to Munster, it really excited me and um, I've, I've loved it. You touched on the competition there, you had an Ulster, but in Munster at the moment, you have Dan Goggin, Rory Scannell, Chris Farrell. Next season, you'll have Damien Delende. The competition is great for a coach. It's a wonderful headache to have, but does it get tough on the player? Yeah, I think at the... At the minute, in the midfield, in Ireland in general, I think there is a lot of very, very good players. And I think there's a lot of players that are probably not too far off each other in terms of ability, which makes things tough, I think. Um, I think, to answer your question, there's five lads there that have all proven themselves at European level and they all know they're good enough to play European level uh, rugby. So managing them and trying to keep them happy is a juggling act, you know. You're working with some of the most ambitious people in the world and they want to develop and they want to fulfil their potential. So it, it is definitely tough and it does get tough, but it's, it, it is what it is. It's, prof- it's professional sport. Um, it just so happens to be at the minute that the midfield in Ireland is absolutely stacked and uh, sometimes you have to just bide your time and be a bit patient and... Uh, and keep working away and working hard. And what do you think that Delende will bring to the Munster team next year when he arrives? Uh, he's a world-class player. There's no doubt about that. He's a World Cup winning centre. Um, so he's definitely going to add a lot in terms of you know what Munster want to do and, and wanting to win trophies and they want to win them now. So in terms of Munster and the ambition of the club to go and win trophies, he's he's what they need, you know, they want to go and win European Cups, you have to have the players to go and do it and I think he's he's undoubted uh, world class um, I just think the balance the balance now is trying to fit everybody into the puzzle and um, managing lads and keeping them happy With the late start because of the World Cup and some coaches arriving late as a result as well, and obviously with the early finish to the season, it must have been hugely frustrating as a player to kind of want to learn new systems, incorporate them and then suddenly for the season to be cut short? Yeah, definitely. I think um, so. I think Steve actually arrived in August um, and then Graham Roundtree I th- arrived obviously after the World Cup. So that was kind of the start of the season. It was really just a condi- conditioning team, JP and Johan. Nobody knew really, we knew bits of what Steve wanted to implement, but it was very hard to do it without him being there. Um, so it was sort of kind of bit of a, a makeshift process, I suppose, to do what we could do at the time and do it well. Um, once Steve arrives, you know, he um, he put his foot down pretty firm, and he and he's the fellow that is guiding the the attack and, and stuff like that in a minute. And boys are really really enjoying working with them. At the minute, it's still kind of a very territory based game which is what Munster are good at is what we're good at so they want we want to keep that aspect of it but they, you know in order to go and win trophies you've got to have that bit of X factor and you've got to train it and you've got to practice it you've got to have that freedom I suppose in the players to, to want to express themselves and to go out and, and play and, and trust their instincts I've, I've always felt as a player that I'm at my most dangerous when I'm not thinking when I'm playing I'm playing on instinct I'm not worried about consequences I'm not worried about what I did well or what I did badly. I'm just kind of playing in the moment and playing on instinct. And I think that's when generally players play their best. So I think it's been a lot of kind of building building that 
building guys back in back in what they see and playing what's in front of them, but also playing kind of smart rugby as well. You know, when when there's space in the backfield, you, we're still going to take it. You made your European debut against Ayano with Ulster, but Munster have a very strong relationship with the European competition. You made your debut in Europe for Munster against Leicester back in 2017. How did you find playing in a European competition in Thoma Park? Yeah, it was it was surreal. It all sort of happened very quickly because in my first season um, at Munster, I pretty much missed the entire the entire first season with injuries. Um, and then I didn't really know what to expect in my second season. Um, and it just so happened that all the centres around me sort of just fell fell down with injuries. And I think within the space of literally a month, I'd gone from playing in the AIL to starting in Europe against Leicester. The the one thing that sticks to me in that game was uh, running down the tunnel and looking up. And I remember it was that night and all the fireworks going off and just kind of really cemented in my head that, yeah, I'm, I really am here now. And... You know, this is special. This is this is this is awesome. I've worked so hard to sort of be here now, and that was the moment where it first sunk in. And hearing the kind of European music, and and you're like, yeah, you know, you know, you know, you're there, kind of thing. And the following year, then you won the Young Player of the Year for Munster. That must have been quite a special moment, especially considering you came off the back of the Academy Player of the Year for Ulster as well. Uh, yeah, that, that that was that was nice. Obviously, it's, um, I suppose to get the the appreciation I suppose um, for kind of your breakthrough year um, but for me personally they, they're just kind of awards they're like if you if you sit and admire them then you're gonna you're gonna stumble for me it's something that I want to look back on in kind of 20 20 30 years I don't want to kind of stand still too long and appreciate what what has been and stuff like that so for me it's about continuing to get better obviously winning that award I was pretty humbled and uh, I was very grateful, but um, the time comes where you got to move on and um, you got to start start putting your foot down and going again. Would you have a favourite moment yet with Munster, or are you still too busy looking at the future? No, I have a favourite moment for Munster. My favourite moment for Munster would be um, the quarter final against Toulon. I remember kind of in the build up to the game, there was loads of kind of press and media around myself and Rory being kind of so inexperienced in the midfield and. I think two international caps between us. I think Roy had two and I had none or, or something along them lines. And how we didn't stand a chance against Nolo and Bastaro and sort of everybody kind of wrote us off in the build-up to the game. And just the feeling at the end of the, end of that game and I remember the final whistle going and just running straight over to Pete and just giving him a big man hug and just being the atmosphere and, and everything was just unbelievable. The lid nearly blew off the place and... Um, that was by far, by far my my favourite moment in the Munster shirt. It was it was special. I think that late try from Conway is going to be probably a tough moment to beat. Yeah, I think that's the the moments that kind of special players are uh, are built on. You know, them them big match swinging moments, and I think that's kind of that's a try that I think you're going to see for the next 10, 20, 30, 40 years, and people will look back and say, "Oh, I remember when Andrew Conway scored that kind of winning winning try against Toulon." I think. That try sort of etched and cemented in history for a good while anyway. Another great moment came for you a couple of months after that when you made your debut against USA. Again, that was something, that was one of them kind of big landmark, kind of landmark moments. Um, I remember going into 
to camp the week before and I was helping the lads kind of prepare for the All Blacks game and all the midfielders had gone down. Um, you were coming off the back of a concussion, was it? Uh, yeah, I got knocked out against Glasgow uh, a, f- a few weeks previously and I'd been called into camp just to help the lads prepare. I was only in for the last two weeks of camp. All the centres had been injured just in the autumn series, so I had to run a 12. Um, it was my first day in camp preparing for the All Blacks game, not knowing any of the calls. And I remember just being like, oh, no, what's going on here? Now, obviously, the boys came back injured and they ended up playing and obviously went on to beat the All Blacks. And then that following week, like you said, it was my, my debut against the USA. Um, my mum, my sister... My stepdad, everybody was all over. And um, again, one of them landmark moments when I was standing there singing the anthems and it was just kind of surreal. You look up and you do realise that you are you, you're, you're where you've always wanted to be and you've worked so hard to achieve it. So it is definitely, it was definitely a, an, an emotional moment and it was it was very special for me. Was waking up that morning slightly different to waking up the morning of a European game? Uh, I think because... It was something I'd never experienced before and it was kind of the fear of the unknown. I think with kind of the Pro 14 and Europe, the more games you accumulate, the more kind of confident and comfortable you get. You know, you go to bed at night thinking, oh, I've done this before, I can do it again. With that game, it was something that I'd I'd never done before. I, I never knew what to expect. I'd never played an international game of rugby. The nerves of the unknown, but it's something that once you get a taste of it, it just kind of encapsulates you and... Uh, you just want more and more of it, and it's something that I'm so determined to, to try and get back to. You would have played under a lot of coaches. Who have you enjoyed working with most so far? I've enjoyed working working with all of the coaches um, I've played under. Um, I think I, I wouldn't really have a, a preference. I think they're all very, very good in kind of their own ways and, and different philosophies and stuff like that. I, I loved working under Joe. Uh, his attention to detail and how, and how hard he works. Um, I love that. Uh, Razzie worked under Razzie. The, the edge that Razzie brings to coaching and, again, how hard he works, how emotionally intelligent he is, how he gets the best out of players. We could see that with South Africa in the World Cup. I think he's probably the best, I think, one of the best man-motivating coaches in the world. And I think lots of lads would say that. I love working with Johan. Johan really connects with the people aspect and the kind of outside of rugby approach. You know, he doesn't want to just know you as a rugby player, he wants to know you as a man. And I think that's very important as well. So I think between Joe Razzi and, and Johan, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have a preference of what style I prefer, but they all bring different things to the table and um, they've all definitely um, massively helped me in my rugby career. I know it was a poor World Cup for Ireland, but when Razzi lifted that World Cup, you must have been so happy for Ireland. Yeah, I think I, I think when Jonesy going to the South African team and Rassi going to the South African team and, and Jock going back as well was announced, if someone would have said to you South Africa are going to win the World Cup next year, I think a few lads wouldn't have been that surprised. That's how kind of highly he was. they were rated by the players and that's how highly they thought of them. And if you'd have said to a few lads, like I said there, South Africa will win the World Cup, Next year, I think a few lads would go, yeah, look, I think you probably probably could be right. That that That's kind of the regard they held them lads in. And obviously, they kind of surprised the world. But I think lads that had worked under these coaches, they, they weren't surprised at all. Did you text them afterwards or anything? Uh, I text Jonesy. 
uh, I'd speak to Jonesy now, mean, uh, even now and again, I just chat to him about rugby and stuff like that, and he gives me good advice, and uh, we have a good catch-up. I text him after the World Cup just to see how he was. I was absolutely delighted for him. He's one of the best one of the best men ever, um, and I was absolutely chuffed with him, so I had a good chat with him after that. Uh, Alan as well, obviously. Sent Alan a good message as well. I had a good chat with him, and I was just absolutely delighted to see people kind of get what they deserve, you know? They... They'd worked so hard and uh, and they got the reward they finally deserved and I couldn't have been happier for them. The next point that I want to ask you about, you've actually brought up already. It's just kind of around the media and their relationship with players. There's a lot of articles, especially lately, that slate players and coaches, especially with the development of social media over the last few years. It brings fans closer than ever um, to those involved in the game. Does this ever get stressful? Yeah, mate, it does definitely get uh, stressful. You know, there's, you try not to read things and you try not to see things, but sometimes things pop up and you see them and, and you do come across them. And they definitely they affect different people in, in different ways. I think Jack Carty came out recently and he, he, he said how much they affected him and he actually had screenshots on his, on his phone. You know, I know lads that will play a game of rugby and then the first thing they do is search their name on Twitter to see who's who's abusing them or giving out to them. That, that That's the extent that it does affect players, you know. Personally, as an individual, it's something I distance myself from and I wouldn't kind of tie my value as a person to to rugby because then when you have a bad game, it affects your family life. It affects everything around you. So you kind of have to separate them two. But um, in terms of does it affect you, man, it massively affects certain individuals. Yeah, it massively does. And it's something that lads do try to get away from but um, you know when somebody's uh, giving you a bit of stick here or criticising you here or there if, if you haven't come across it yourself somebody's somebody else has read it or somebody else has sent it to you to show you so it does definitely and I think a lot of these people write these things and they don't think the players are going to see them but a lot of the time the players do see them and they remember it as well even earlier you said that that game against Toulon you were being written off because yourself and Scannell were facing Nanu and Bastero. like that's hardly the preparation you need before heading into a quarter final yeah like I said for me personally I I try to stay away from from that stuff massively and and during that week the big thing for me was I remember thinking about it and being like well nobody's given me a hope anyway so in terms of pressure, there's actually none on me because there's no pressure for me to perform here. There's no expectation on me. I'm 21. I was 21 years old at the time. You know, nobody's expecting me to to go out there and do a job on these lads. So you know, there's no expectation. I'm just going to go out there and I'm going to enjoy myself and adapt myself and believe in myself enough to to do it and prove these people wrong. And I did it. And I, and uh, well, to an extent, I did. I, I did. It, I did it. And we and we won a game. And um, I was just kind of delighted to be progressing to the semi-final with the lads. It must make it that bit sweeter when you prove the people wrong. Though. It does, yeah. It does, definitely. But I think if you tie your kind of your love and emotion of the game to proving people wrong, you, you're never going to... You know, you're always trying to prove yourself to somebody else. Do you know what I mean? The best players in the world, they, they want to prove it to themselves. They don't care what other people say. They don't care what their mum says or their dad says. They, they're their own, their own critic, and they know what's right and they know what's wrong. So that's something for me that um, that I personally try to do. If I have a bad game, I know I've had a bad game. 
I don't need somebody giving out to me kind of on Twitter or something like that. And I'm my own critic, so I'll stay away from this stuff. I won't read it. And I'll go away and I'll keep working hard because I know the truth, you know. I think Johnny Sexton also came out and said, one week he's a good player, one week he's a bad player. You know, that's just the scrutiny of the media. And unfortunately, lots of people believe what they read. You've suffered a lot of injuries throughout the years. Um, you've injured your cruciate, your medial hamstring, a broken leg be Connacht. How important is it to be mentally strong in a game where so many setbacks can occur? Uh, I think uh, kind of mental strength and stuff like that is the difference between an average player and a very, very good player. And a, or a well, The difference between an average player and a world-class player, that's what I personally believe. There's not a lot athletically between players nowadays. Um, everybody's you know, a certain size, a certain weight, a certain power output. But uh, generally speaking, I think the best players... And the ones that perform the best are the most mentally strong. They're the ones that are the most resilient. They bounce back from setbacks. They have a stubbornness to them. They don't quit. They don't give up. And um, they eventually get their reward. I think that alone is the most important capacity in professional sport. Now, obviously, you need to work hard on your skills and your conditioning to get to a certain level. But at the top of the game, I think that that's what it's all about, mate. Them, them kind of top two inches... Um, that mental strength, that mental resilience. And, and uh, it's something that can definitely be trained and it, it comes with time, definitely. When a player gets injured, a lot of fans don't actually see that side of it. They just see the person who comes in to replace that player. Besides the injury itself, what is the hardest part of being injured? I think the hardest part of being injured is um, the fact that what you've grown up loving to do, what you do for a living, has been taken away from you. You know? The way I like to think about it is for, an, uh, for a person that doesn't play professional sports, think of something that you love the most and you you live to do it. You love to do it. Now, imagine somebody taking that away from you and saying you can't do that for seven months or you may never be able to do that again. And that's kind of the, the mindset that it puts players in. You know, you're, you're almost having a carrot dangled in front of your face in terms of you're going in for your physio and your rehab. You're seeing the lads... Um, playing at the games when you're sitting in the stands you're seeing them having the crack on the pitch and you're standing there it is massively tough it is definitely but I think it's them kind of uh, moments that build that mental resilience that I talk about you know them kind of tough times in the long run are what makes a player resilient they make them tough uh, they make them stubborn and so I think it's a very very important that you experience these things as well because if it was all plain sailing then you never learn anything and uh, you'd probably stagnate as well. So there's a lot of, you can look at it in a bad way in terms of getting injuries or you can look at it in a way of growing as an individual, becoming more resilient, becoming more stubborn, realigning, focusing. But yeah, it, it is tough, definitely. Finally, the last thing I'll ask, this season didn't go to plan for anyone across the board, really. In terms of next season and beyond, what are your own personal ambitions moving forward? I believe that next year is a Lions year, isn't it? Yeah. Um, so for me personally, it would be more consistency in my minutes and targeting that kind of national tour when um, a lot of the internationals away with the Lions. I'd like to try to get myself on that tour in the summer. That would be a long-term kind of aim to, to go on that national tour of Ireland in the summer when lads are away with the Lions. 
for me personally, it's getting a clean run of games, consistency in my minutes and being able to build form and, and confidence. I think what works best for me personally as an individual, I think when I play my best rugby is when I'm playing not every single week, but a lot, you know, I'm playing 80 minutes, 80 minutes, maybe another 80 a week off. When I had my best season, when I look back and when I produced my best rugby, um, was that 2017-2018 season and I had 17 starts that year and that's when I produced my best rugby so for me as an individual I know that's what I need to produce it I need that consistency and I know if I can get it which I'm going to have to work hard for then I know I can just I, I know I can produce Well listen Sammy that's great thanks a million for coming on the podcast today and discussing a wide range of subjects No worries Cheers Jeff Thanks for having me mate Well that's it folks thanks a million for listening